Welcome to the Barry Sachs Show. Thanks for joining me on the Barry Sachs Show. I'm Barry Cockroft, and I'll be hosting this podcast with guest saxophonists from around the world. We will be exploring the stories behind these great musicians with telling insights into how they got started and the ongoing development of their careers. Thanks for being here on this adventure, and please subscribe for a new episode each week. The details of each episode, including a transcript, the show notes, and any links, can be found at barrysax.com. Hello again, everybody, to wherever you may be. It has to be said for this particular interview that it really had to be done face-to-face. Paul Cohen has an enormous privately held saxophone collection with hundreds of instruments and mouthpieces and all sorts of things from the saxophone history. It really has to be seen to be believed. I was very fortunate to be able to go to his house and meet with Paul and see this really extensive collection. I was also able to try out some of the instruments, some things not only had I never played before, but I'd never seen nor heard of. So it was really a great treat, and Paul was very hospitable to both me and my family as we visited New York. So it was a great treat, and I think in this interview you are going to hear some real gems, uh, both from teaching advice and incredible words of wisdom drawn from years and years of performing experience at the highest possible level. Oh, one last thing. Be sure to stick around until the end and you can check out my auditions for a brand new podcast co-host. Paul Cohen is one of America's most sought-after saxophonists for orchestral and chamber concerts and solo recitals. He has also performed with a broad range of orchestras, including the New York Philharmonic and many others. Dr. Cohen is on the faculties of the Manhattan School of Music, Rutgers University, Queens College, and New York University. His teachers have included Galen Krull, Joe Allard, and Sigurd Rascher. He has published more than 100 articles on the history and literature of the saxophone in music journals such as The Saxophone Journal, The Instrumentalist, and many others. Combining his musicological pursuits with performing activities, Dr. Cohen has rediscovered and performed lost saxophone literature, including solo works for saxophone and orchestra. His company, To The Four Publishers, releases his arrangements and settings for saxophone ensemble, as well as original, historical and contemporary saxophone works from selected composers. Dr. Cohen frequently presents lectures on the saxophone, illustrating his talks with rare instruments, manuscripts and archival material from his extensive private collection. Please welcome my guest today, New York saxophonist, Paul Cohen. So, uh, first of all, Paul, thanks uh, for the tour this morning of your amazing collection of saxophones. It was a pleasure to show it to you, and it was really great to show your whole family all these instruments. They were as excited as you were. They were really excited. And when I said to them the other day, if they would like to come along, we will be visiting a museum besides speaking with you. And like, yes, let's go. We want to go. <laughs> because when you visit New York, you could visit Contemporary Art Museum, the Natural History Museum. There's museums everywhere. But actually, sometimes what means more to kids is something much more personal. Mm-hmm. So it's been a great tour. Thank you. Well, great. And we've only just started. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's right. There's many more to go. <laughs> so we'll be back next week for the <laughs> rest of the tour. So what I wanted to talk to you uh, about 
to start with is how you actually got started with the saxophone in the first place. It's not a very exciting story. Uh, in my grade school and public schools, we were all expected to choose an instrument in our fourth grade. And <clears throat> my brother played clarinet, so I couldn't play clarinet. And my other brother played tuba, so I could go in that direction. Only girls played flute in my fourth grade mind, and what was left was a saxophone. So not knowing much about it, I played the saxophone because it was there and available, and we had to choose something. Little did I realize that the saxophone had was the perfect instrument for somebody of my temperaments and personality. And as I grew older and got to see how the, what the saxophone was all about, it really meshed well with my particular interests. So I kept growing with that. Did you find that you had a teacher initially, one who was a specialist in your instrument and also was able to give you the direction you needed? In high school, and I only started lessons later in high school, I had a very fine commercial saxophone player as a teacher. He was a saxophonist, but he also played flute and clarinet, and he was very much involved in, in doing shows and commercial work. Um, but he was a, a very fine musician and a very, very good teacher. And so that got me to a level of, of uh, proficiency that was sufficient for my playing in, in, in high school. When I went to college, I was not a music major at first. I was a chemistry major. But I uh, was so much interested in continuing my saxophone interests that I, I kept a toehold in the music conservatory at the college I went to. And that toehold never stopped. So I became so involved in the music making in the conservatory in my first semester at school that I uh, transferred my major into that conservatory and continued as, as a music major from then on. All right. So did you ever feel when you started being a chemistry major, did you feel you were misplaced? or you were happy to be in sort of a foot in each door? Because I was a chemistry major, I was able to test out of the first chemistry classes I would take. So they give me more time to pursue my music interests. So I never really got to be a full-time chemistry major. I had, I had a little bit of ability as a chemistry major, but I had a lot more interest in being a music major. So the, the music was something I just loved to do, and the chemistry was something I was sort of okay at. That's good deal. And did you actually choose that path, or was it, let's say, encouraged by your family to follow a certain path? My family was wonderful. They wanted me to follow the path that I was enthusiastic about and that I could succeed in. And even though uh, being a chemistry major would have been much more secure for further employment, they realized that in early college, finding your passion, being able to learn how to succeed, and, uh, and becoming very satisfied with what you do was more important than a specific vocational career path. So they were very happy that I was, I was doing that. Do you find that today that students are choosing music for the same reason? That they're following a passion or uh, are they choosing for other reasons? Most of the students that I come to work, work with are either really passionate about music making in a saxophone or some of my schools, they have a real interest in, in being, having a career in education, in music education. So they love the idea of being music educators, and the saxophone is their instrument to help with that music education. Okay. So it's two different branches of that. So you have a number of teaching positions, it seems. Yes. It, um, reading through what you do each week, it must be quite a juggle. I do work eight days a week, three shifts a day. <laughs> Uh, I've scaled back a little bit the last two years because I've been doing a lot more performing internationally. 
and doing a lot more touring. But I still keep my affiliations with at least three or four schools. And uh, uh, it is a bit of a juggling act. But it's all, it, it's all good because I learned as much from my teaching as my students learned from me. And uh, as long as I don't become exhausted by it all, I find that the teaching I do really informs my playing so I can play better. Have you been able to find a way that allows you to keep that freshness? Because sometimes the demands of students can be overwhelming. Teachers can become burned out or um, they need a break from it. I mean, what's your way of dealing with that? When I see the students' reactions to learning something truly new and understanding it, that to me is a great satisfaction and a great exhilaration. So over the course of my teaching from week to week, when I can make these, these little awarenesses or these major breakthroughs uh, on a regular basis from day to day, week to week, that reinforces my enthusiasm for being able to teach and to, to make real differences for them. So it's not just showing them a better fingering and it's not just telling them about a, 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 an articulation, but it's, it's showing them something deeper within the music they're playing or deeper within the processes they need to, to develop in order to become better at what they're doing to achieve a higher level that they're becoming aware of, those things are extremely rewarding to me and that, that helps to sustain. I've heard a lot of people say that the standard of students in the last 20 years has skyrocketed throughout the world. Do you think there's a particular reason that the level is becoming so high? I find that the technical level of saxophonists has risen a lot. I've found that the tonal qualities of saxophone players have risen a lot. I have not found that the musical level of saxophonists have risen as much. Sometimes it's camouflaged by better saxophone playing, but I don't always find it in better musical playing. And that's a real issue that I, I contend with because many people will say, but he plays so well. And I will say, yes, he does play so well. Finally, we have a saxophone sound that is beautiful to hear and is consistent up and down. Finally, we have intonation that is more or less consistent throughout. And finally, we have a, um, an advanced technique that, that can play almost anything. All those are great improvements, but I still find there's a lack of artistic expression, a lack of musical understanding. As to why saxophonists are now playing technically better these days, I think, uh, I think now that uh, in the current generations of saxophone teachers, uh, the teachers have gotten away from the parochial institutions of the schools that, that was very divisive many years ago. And now we're listening to the saxophone more in a universal context of wind music making and not just the camp that they came from or that the particular uh, teacher's exact way of playing. So just starting to let other factors filter in that are more universally recognized or accepted as norms of sound and playing Younger students are able to to pick up on that more easily, more quickly. So I think we, we do get to a much higher level of saxophone playing. Right. Now, you've had a number of different teachers over the years when you were a student. Mm -hmm. Could you describe the differences between the teaching styles that you encountered as a student? Well, that's really interesting. Um, my first teacher in college was not a saxophonist. He was an orchestral oboist who, in his role as a conservatory, was asked to teach saxophone. So he immersed himself in understanding about the technique of the saxophone. And there is some relationship between that and the oboe. So the tremendous benefit that I got from him was that 
unlike most of the teachers of saxophone at that time, this is in the late 60s, um, he had no preconceived notion of the saxophone playing. He wanted to hear it as an orchestral instrument. He was used to playing in the Baltimore Symphony. And he had this, this, this great understanding of orchestral sound. So he approached the saxophone as saying, you belong in the orchestra. That translated to this, the quality of sound he wanted, to the mouthpiece he recommended, to the way he taught the literature. And that was my first introduction to real serious saxophone playing. So that was a quality of playing that stayed with me. Very, very important. We always joked, um, uh, students in the, in the studio, that we would give our teacher saxophone lessons over summer so you can learn to play the saxophone better because he never played. Uh, but we were so appreciative of what he taught us about how to play the instrument from a technical point of view and from the great tonal and musical elements that he instilled in us about how to go out and play. That was as an undergraduate. As a graduate student, I studied with Joe Allard, the famous New York teacher. And he uh, was a, a great player in clarinet and saxophone. Came from a very different school of playing. He was very much associated with uh, the French school. But he was a, a master of that, a genius at understanding the real mechanics of tone production. And uh, although when I went to him, he had me change mouthpieces from what was then a Russian mouthpiece to a song of sea star. And that was quite a change for me. But what I learned from him about the mechanics of, of playing, what goes into tone production, what we need to do in order to create the sound that we want and how to control it, uh, the, the pedagogy involved in learning how to play was invaluable and is a very important part of how I teach today. So I spent four years with Joe Allard, too, as a master student, too, as a doctoral student. And that made a tremendous change in, in my ability to play the instrument. It'll, it gave me the versatility to play all the different saxophones that I do and, and was just a tremendous influence on my, on my playing. I also spent some time with Sigurd Rascher, not as a traditional student. I never really took a lesson with Sigurd Rascher, but I spent a lot of time with Sigurd Rascher. Not only at as many clinics that he had during the summers, but as I became friendly with him and he sort of adopted me as a junior, junior colleague because I was able to find things in the saxophone world that he did not know about. Some of them were instruments, some of them were music. And, and uh, he was very taken with the fact that I would be doing this kind of research and bringing it to him, including coming up with the original Dahl Concerto score and parts, which I've been, been working with for quite a while now, which he thought was a, a gone and dead issue. So he would invite me up to his farm in upstate New York several times a year, over a period of many years. And I would spend a lot of time discussing all things musical and saxophonic with him, but not how to play. We would talk about the philosophy of playing. We would talk about the artistic visions of playing. We would talk about the practicalities of how to make uh, a piece of music more viable or to what, we, what one needs to do to, in order to create musical situations and scenarios. Uh, we would talk about the, the state of music playing and the state of saxophone playing. And that, that philosophic and artistic and pedagogical vision also had a great influence on how I not only prepare my own playing, and the standards I have for that, but also how I address my students and what my expectations are for the students and how I teach them. So these are three major influences for both of the Would you say your own teaching 
now is informed by the way you learned as a student or has, has your own teaching method evolved over the years to, to become unique for you? I have a completely unique way of teaching, but it's all based upon my prior experiences with my other teachers. So, for instance, um, Joe Allard had some uh, math piece exercises that he would have us do. I took those and expanded them uh, into a whole other set of math piece exercises, which are fundamentals that my students use. His idea is that I just took and then augmented on. We all use Sigurd Rasher's uh, top tone book for overtone development. And I learned that overtones, along with Joe Allard, but mostly from Mr. Rasher, is, is an essential part of our learning. So I wrote my own, I'll just our primer book. I'll give you a copy before you go. Uh, that, uh, that is an extension of the top tone book. After the top tone book, then you type my book as a way of expanding what my teaching is. Um, the whole notion of how to play concerti and how to teach concertis came from my discussion with Sigurd Rascher. It's very interesting uh, stories from him his attitude about playing piano reductions. I always played piano reductions or concertos. Of course we do that. But his point was, that was not how it was intended. He never played a piano reduction because he always played it with orchestra. They were written for him. He played with orchestra. Piano reduction is not the way you present the music. The music was really designed to be played with full orchestra. So that made a big impression on me. Of course we play piano reductions to students. We do that for essential learning purposes. But... I don't program and I advise against my students who are playing professional concerts to play piano reductions to concertos. We have plenty of other music to play and we can find appropriate pieces that won't diminish the quality of the work by putting it into a piano reduction just for our own convenience. You would never hear uh, Itzhak Perlman playing a piano reduction of a Beethoven violin concerto. This won't happen. So those are some things that go in the idea of, of repertoire and what's appropriate to play and what not to play uh, was informed by my work with, with these teachers. But then again, also informed me was my own experience as a professional player, especially my work as an orchestra player, not soloist with an orchestra, but within the orchestra and hearing what my, or my wind colleagues do in order to create the great sound and the great blend and the great uh, level of playing that you do. And, and that the saxophone should play like that. And how do we get there and what's the reason for that? So a lot of my teaching goes along on those lines also. A rigorous discussion about tone, tonal consistency, uh, tonal interests, how we can need to approach that philosophically and how we get there technically. The mechanics of really high-level tone production for really high-level artistic playing. So that's something that more or less came from my own experiences. The other pedagogy influenced but augmented by my other uh, other teachers. It sounds like your idea of tone uh, is that it must have a context. So it would depend who you're playing with, what what group you're playing with. Of course. Look, we're, we're so lucky. The saxophone is, is such a great versatile instrument. It's a perfect instrument for rock and roll bands. It's a perfect instrument for contemporary music ensembles. It's a perfect instrument to play with the church choir or with the chorus. It's a perfect instrument to play in an orchestra. It's a great recital instrument. It's a great instrument for playing jazz, whether you're going to be playing bebop jazz or big band jazz. 
But all these ensembles, all these venues have a different tonal quality to them. It's a different context. So, of course, to make the instrument sound authentic in that, we have to be able to know how to create a sound quality that's going to sound authentic to the genre that we're playing in or to the venue. So it's all contextual. And, and uh, that goes along with teaching students uh, the flexibility of tone production so that they have the chops, literally, to go into a situation and adapt their playing to match the situation better. So there's a certain versatility that's built into my teaching them. Uh, and not only in just the mechanics of playing, but the equipment they use. Uh, I cannot use my orchestral mouthpiece when I'm playing in a big band. Nor would I use my big band mouthpiece to play in, in an orchestra. I could come close, but it wouldn't be at the level, the most authentic level possible. So that that is part of it. Yes, it's, it's all about context. Do you think the idea of specializing is becoming more prevalent where people or even students will choose a particular area of saxophone and focus on that? And so that these issues perhaps, no, I don't want to do big band music or I don't want to do that. Do you think that's becoming uh, a way of approaching the instrument where you choose a specialty early on? It may be, but I hope it's not. <laughs> In good conscience, I couldn't. I couldn't provide a pathway for a student that would only be in that central area. Now, having said that, a lot of my graduate students and doctoral students come in with a specialty they want to pursue. But I'm always reminding them of the need to use these skills that we're developing and be ready to apply them in different areas just for employment purposes. So that you may be working on uh, the Huso, the Doc, and Cherno, but if you get called to play in a wedding band, you'll know what to do. <laughs> So, yeah, people become more and more interested and more and more specialized, but uh, I never ask them to, to be exclusionary to that. I always want them to be aware of that. Now that you're working eight days a week, how would you describe the way that you practice as opposed to when you're a student and you're perhaps working only seven days a week? Yeah. Um, how do you approach practice now with so many activities taking up your time? Uh, my third shift comes into here. here. <laughs> I tend to practice very, in very early mornings, literally between 1 and 3 a.m. when I'm preparing is a good practice time for me. But I find I have to be very efficient. My past practice times were, were quite efficient when I was a student. So I, I learned my skills carefully and I retained these skills well. So when I'm practicing, it's really about learning the particular issues of the music I'm playing and not necessarily uh, reacquiring skills. Some skills I have to keep highly refined. When I'm playing Atsumo or when I'm playing fast passages, I have to really make sure I, I, I keep, I retain the technical uh, agility necessary. And then it becomes just a question of focusing in on, on the part. So I will often divide my, when I'm, practicing and preparing for a major event, my practice session isn't always in the illustrious artistic playing of this music. Sometimes I'm just playing for the notes. Sometimes I'm only be playing two pages in a practice session um, with a practice read. And it's just, it's just getting to be comfortable and, and we're familiar with it. Other times I will play just for the sound and making sure that I have a sound that's going to reach in the registers that's required or that's going to um, things that have a, a very delicate tonal context. I'm aware of how to approach that and I don't worry about the notes. So my practice has become very specific, very, very focused. 
and uh, at odd hours of the day. Do you feel that memorization is an important part of performance and also in practice? Uh, at this point, I've done, I've appeared before wind groups, orchestras, and chamber groups as a soloist hundreds of times. Not once have we played from memory. I don't memorize very well. So the necessity or being imposed memorization is only going to detract from my performance. Even though when I go and play a concerto, it's 95% memorized anyway. Just the fact that uh, there's the possibility of something going askew, not having that reference, seriously compromises my ability to play. So I'm not an advocate of memorization. If one can do it without impacting your performance, have at it. But when people come to hear me play, they really come to hear me play. They don't come to see me play. <laughs> so uh, I'm not an advocate of, of imposed memorization. And I don't feel that at a performance level it helps. When I am preparing difficult passages of, of, a, of a work, I find that if I do memorize some of those passages, it allows me to concentrate better on this execution. And in performance, having that memorization will help me in performance, even though I still have the music there. So it's a little more complex that memorization in, in specific small areas can be helpful in learning parts. But I myself do not do memorization when I play. Do you think for instruments like the piano or the violin where it is really imposed, do you think that might be leaving out some people who would be in the same situation where they would say, my memorization skills are going to let me down? Um, therefore, they get pushed aside and we never get to hear those musicians. I, I believe so. Look, in piano, it's a little more practical to memorize, just for page strings. In violin, not so much so. But I believe that why are we punishing people who may not be able to memorize when they be, be consummate artists and have great insight into their music? What is it about the memorization that is more important than about the quality of the musicianship or artistry that we hear? So, yeah, I believe that is possible. Yeah. And, and there is a trend these days with wood players. Many times you'll see uh, uh, the, the principal players of an orchestra playing concertos with the orchestra as part of their season's thing. And most of the time they're using music for several reasons. One, the music is more complex. I mean, not necessarily technically harder, but just more complex in its construction. So it's not as easy to, to get the flow of it. And secondly, they just don't have the time to memorize it Whereas these excellent musicians can much more quickly learn to play it at the highest level with the music there as, uh, for their use. Now we're sitting in a room and we're surrounded visibly by, let's say, 30 instruments. Mm -hmm. How have you developed the proficiency to play not only multiple saxophones, multiple sizes, multiple keys, but also instruments from different ages of the saxophone history? What have you done in your practice that has allowed you to be so flexible in approaching different instruments? Two things. One is with Joe Allard, I received great instruction on tone production and the flexibility we need in order to produce sound. So that allowed me to not be locked into any particular embouchure for any particular mouthpiece for any particular instrument to play. I developed a, 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 a freedom of relationship between my tone production mechanism and the mechanics of music. That's one. Secondly, uh, when I was in, in school, my main alto was the Selmer Mark VI, one that I still use. 
But when I went to one of the Rasha clinics, I heard Karina Rasha playing soprano saxophone. It was the most beautiful soprano playing I, I'd ever heard. So I went and found an old Bruce Kerb soprano saxophone, which she used. I had it overhaul. I started playing it with the mouthpiece that she had played in a bigger uh, chamber mouthpiece. And that was a completely different uh, experience in, in producing sound on the instrument. Totally different from a modern instrument with a modern mouthpiece. But being in school, I took the time to do that. I had that sound in my ear, I, uh, and I learned to not be locked in with certain arbitrary specifics. And so I learned to play the older instrument uh, proficiently and started to use that. So very early, I was comfortable in playing the older vintage instruments with the older mouthpieces, as well as the modern instruments with the modern mouthpieces. And that happened early on. And from that, I just learned to have this, this uh, flexibility right now. Um, and, and because I learned my overtone technique really well while I was in, uh, in grad school. Uh, and I began to really develop the flexibility to play overtones, um, especially learning it on the big chamber mouthpieces, which is much harder than on the, the traditional mouthpieces. I, got, I developed a depth of technique that allowed me flexibility to, I can play on the saxophone, not any other instrument, on the saxophone, I can play any instrument with any mouthpiece. Do you think that flexibility is easier to achieve at a younger age when uh, kids are studying? Or would it be something that you could approach later on? I think the earlier is better. The earlier the better. The earlier is better, yeah. Because I've, I've come across students in third and fourth year of college who have been so used to one way of playing and introducing other concepts is very challenging for them sometimes. Uh, that it's, it's hard for them to... to get away from what has been working for them for so long. And literally, not philosophically, but physically, to learn to undo certain muscle motions or, or learn to develop a certain independence of muscular groups within the, uh, the oral cavity settings. And uh, it's, it's challenging for them to, to make some of these adjustments. So I think earlier is better to do that. You mentioned that you're quite efficient in your, your approach to learning your music. Is there something specifically that you do that is very efficient that you would advise others to do? All of our practice habits are, are quite individualized. But what I found that helps me a lot is I will uh, practice in very concentrated short bursts, maybe 20-minute bursts. And, um, and sometimes I'll work on uh, a, a particular passage for a short time, but very intense. And when I'm done with that, I stop, I let it go, I take a break. And then I'll come back and then do something else. That's one thing that I, that I do. So uh, I really, really, really work, work hard, but enough so I don't burn myself out entirely. The other thing I do, which I think has very, been very helpful to me, is I, I set to learn certain passages over a, a period of time. It's, I, I allow myself a process of three or four days to learn something to where I want it to be. So if I have a passage that's gonna be really, really difficult, um, and let's say the goal tempo is 140. Uh, I'll spend the first day doing it at 80. And I stop. I don't go beyond that. Because I know the next day I'm going to come down, I'm going to then bring it up to 100. And I stop. Because I know the next day I'm going to go and work at it until I get to 120. And then I stop. So by giving myself understanding the process of development in these things, I don't try to cram it into one, one time, learn it there, and then the next day go to another section and cram it in. That allows me to learn 
the passage more reliably, and it makes the execution of the passages in performance uh, much more much more reliable. There's a greater probability of it coming out. So the process of learning over a period of time is important, as well as the focus of time. I guess in that process, then, you actually have probably not made any mistakes because you're playing at a slower tempo. Therefore, the number of times you've played it correctly is greatly increased. Yeah, it's, it's, it's a deliberate, positive reinforcement of perfection. I've had plenty of times when I perform where I've been very lucky at getting the runs to come out. I've had plenty of times where I've not been so lucky. So I find that I increase the probability of, of the perfection by doing it this way. Uh, there's, there's no point in preparation of music. There's no point in kind of getting it and getting the gesture. There's the point in really getting the perfection of it. In performance, there's more of a point in getting the gesture to, to work. But if we can do both, get the perfection and get the gesture, then it becomes the completely higher ex expression of the music. So that's, that's the attempt there. Now, you've played for decades. What's the secret to a long, healthy physical capacity to be able to play these instruments for so long? I played baseball every day after school, uh, all the way through college. And I continued to be physically active. Um, I play a lot of competitive table tennis, a very aerobic kind of thing. I do a lot of conducting. And believe it or not, the conducting is a great aerobic exercise so that, that keeps me physically fit. Uh, so, of the many vices that I have, those that I've bypassed include smoking and drinking. So I don't, I don't, uh, I don't smoke and I don't drink socially. And uh, so those are some things that I've done. And also, I, I keep playing constantly, even when I'm not, uh, don't have major things to play. I'm always doing something. I'm either getting ready to record, or I'm doing small recitals, or I'm doing chamber music concerts. So the constancy of playing is literally keeping the chops engaged and, and, and ready, to, ready to go. Now, you've had a very diverse career, it would seem, because you're doing a lot of different things. Did you start out with that vision to have specific things that you wanted to achieve, or did they just sort of evolve over time very organically? It evolved organically. Uh, my interest when I was an undergrad was, uh, I want to be like my friends who play in the orchestra. Uh, my colleagues would play flute and clarinet and bassoon and trumpet in the orchestra. And I love that music. I love that genre. And I wanted to play in those things, but people kept telling me there was no music to play in. So I started to start looking to find what music was available that the saxophone could play in. I started doing some, some natural research for that. This is before this explosion of awareness of music of, uh, of the orchestra with saxophone. This is before that happened. So I started finding lots of music that, had saxophone that I didn't know about. And then I did the same thing with chamber music. I wanted to find chamber pieces because I love playing and I love playing with different groups that were not just saxophones. So I started finding a tremendous amount of unknown music written uh, that used saxophone that spanned hundreds of years. Uh, so that was a, just a natural organic interest in my wanting to, to create a parody of my own playing with my colleagues. Uh, so that was one one path, and that started was sort of a historical, musicological path that intersected with my my interest in instruments. When I started to learn about the history of the instrument and so many diversified kinds of instruments and what they sounded like, so already used to doing some research, I just continued that research by exploring the saxophones past farther and farther. And as I was doing that and starting to give some lectures on it, 
I was encouraged to start writing about it. That's when I started my column for the Saxophone Symposium many years ago, which evolved into the Saxophone Journal columns called the Vintage Saxophone Divisited that I did for many, many years, where I talked about all things related to not only just older instruments, but music, performance practices, legacies of players, etc. And all these things that I've done have only informed my playing as a, as a professional performer. It just made me a better player on this, on this background. A practical example, uh, just a few weeks ago, I was uh, sort of a saxophonist in residence with the Allentown Symphony. Allentown, Pennsylvania has a first-rate regional orchestra. It's about 100 miles from here. So I um, conducted a saxophone ensemble. I gave a lecture, on uh, a demonstration about some of my instruments, which I had with my sopranino. And I was also being hired by the orchestra uh, later that week to play in an all Gershwin, uh, well, three Gershwin pieces, American of Paris, Rhapsody in Blue, and uh, I, I got rid of I was initially hired to play American of Paris because of research I had done on the Gershwin American of Paris. And I had found out that the saxophone use in the American of Paris that we play today is very different than what George Gershwin originally orchestrated. In the version you play today, you have uh, an alto tenor and a baritone part. But in the original version, the alto doubled on soprano, the tenor doubled on alto and soprano, and the baritone doubled on alto and soprano. And there's a brilliant section in there in which the three soprano saxophones are playing with indications of the score of bells in air in three-part harmony. You haven't lived until you've heard the soprano saxophone playing in three-part harmony. So I found the original score, and from the original score, I extracted the original saxophone parts, integrated those parts into the rental parts that we get now, and made it available to any symphony orchestra that wanted to do that. The conductor heard about that, and she was really intrigued by having this original instrumentation, so she hired me to do this. That's one example of my historical uh, research getting me engagements. It got me hired for that. So while I was there, I played Sopranino, and one of my favorite Sopranino uh, demonstrations is to play part of the original orchestration to the Rhapsody in Blue, which called for a Sopranino solo. In the middle of the piece, the section where the Sopranino and Baritone are playing that solo while the piano is scampering around in the middle. In the orchestral version, that music was taken over by the bassoon and the oboe. But in the original Paul Whiteman dance band version, it was Sopranino saxophone and Baritone saxophone. I played the demonstration uh, early in the week, and the conductor of the orchestra who was there was so taken with it that she asked me to play it in the actual concert. So in the orchestral concert, I played that solo instead of the oboe. The oboe was very happy to not play that solo. <laughs> so it was so uh, interesting that she actually made mention of it before the concert, and I played the solo before the piece began to, to show the audience the start the saxophone and to show how it added a real bit of 1920s color and sass to it that enlivened the piece some more. And then I played that piece in the orchestra. So here's an example of my research informing my performing. My ability to play different instruments helped me get, uh, get engaged for this. And I could play them all at an orchestral level of performance. So it wasn't something bizarre that was screeching out there, but it sounded like it belonged in the orchestra with a particular saxophone color.
that's just one example of how I put all these things together. Each aspect of your career informs each other aspect. Completely. And probably collectively that puts all of those at a higher level. It's, it's all integrated into one and they all feed off each other. So when I demonstrate my instruments, I try to demonstrate them as if I was playing in the orchestra. So even though I'd be playing a slide saxophone or a, a straight alto, um, I usually want to make it sound as beautiful as possible and not just like a freak show. So generally I will play orchestral excerpts on these instruments so people in the know can hear uh, a quality performance with an unusual timbre on a strange looking instrument. What, what is the function of recording being to you? As you've done a number of different recordings, what, what purpose does it serve for you personally? Okay, I do it for, for two and a half reasons. One is to reveal to sacrament players a repertoire, repertoire that they don't know of, repertoire that, that should be part of what we present to an audience that we just are not familiar with. So I like to play pieces for the most part that are just unknown. And the second one is to show a, a quality of playing that may be different from what they're used to hearing in the saxophone. They may have um, a level of aspirational refinement. I aspire to a higher levels uh, that may be able to be used as a model for saying, uh, wow, I want to be able to, to phrase in a certain way. I want to be able to, to play it a certain way. It's not about play with his tone quality, or it's not about interpreting like he does, but it's more about having a refinement of presentation that could reflect better on us as, as musician artists as we do now. And the other half part is that in the recordings I make, the CD, the liner notes are extensive, and it gives a lot of background to not only the music itself, but the process of finding the music, which I think can be very helpful to people in understanding what we can do to enhance uh, the stature of our instrument ourselves. And again, you've got the historical background informing um, a component of that recording, which is both the playing but also the information that you provide. Mm -hmm. Great. Now, how would you describe a typical teaching day for yourself? My teaching day is, is uh, divided between either a class that I give. I, I have structured classes at all my schools. In Manhattan School, it's called the Saxman Repertoire Performance Class. It's, it's, it's a lecture class with performance projects. Uh, at Rutgers, it's the traditional studio class, which functions much the same way. Um, then I will have coachings. And then I will have con the saxophone ensemble. And then I will have lessons. My lessons are, are structured into three parts. Uh, one part is technical development, where we work on overtones, we work on altissimo. Another part is uh, tonal development and expression. And the third part is repertoire. So students are to come in with, with the technical attitudes ready to go. They come in with some of the developmental studies ready to play for me. And then we will do repertoire. For my students, Beyond the sophomore year, I encourage them to come in with more than one saxophone to play for me. Uh, it can be their choice. So some people come in with sopranino and tenor, rarely, but usually it's soprano or alto or, or alto and tenor, tenor and baritone. Uh, I like to encourage people to become very familiar with those instruments. So my days, my teaching days are divided like that throughout the course of the week. And logistically, I'm very fascinated by this, but for a number of years you've taught at these different schools. How, how do you coordinate <laughs> even just timetabling all of this activity? Um, 
I have a very good computer <laughs> with, with, a, with a good calendar. Um, I, I actively teach on Saturdays and Sundays, which is not always common. So that expands some time for me. I teach deep into the evenings as need be. And it's amazing what you can do. For, for a while, I was teaching in Oberlin, Ohio, uh, at the Oberlin Conservatory, which is near Cleveland. It's about a, an hour plane ride from here. And I would have days where I would teach at Manhattan School on Sundays and Mondays, fly out to Ohio on, uh, on Tuesdays, come back Wednesday afternoon, go down to Rutgers on Wednesday afternoon uh, to uh, do all of Thursday, and then Friday go to Queens College. I don't do that anymore. <laughs> but if, if I can make that in integrate so well, then, then what I'm doing now without the traveling is relatively calm. Yeah. So now you're feeling your days are much calmer. No, not really. Because <laughs> I fill those days in with much more performance, yep. much more touring, which I really, really love, much more conducting, and much more recording. So it's, it's as busy as before, but uh, just a different direction. Do you think... The opportunities that students have today are different from what you were exposed to as a student. Yes. I think they're much greater today. I think there are many more opportunities uh, for students to play in this. Because saxophone is used in so many different different situations more than it was when I was a student. So I think, um, and especially in this area, in the New York area, where there's so many different performing ensembles, that uh, my students have great opportunities to play in different areas, in different contexts. So that's quite exciting. Is there a level of competition in such a dense city where there's many people essentially competing for the same positions? Yes and no. Competition almost suggests that people are, are playing against each other to be chosen. But in many of these situations, somebody's recommended to the contractor or to the, to the conductor and they get called and they, and they get asked to play. Sometimes I'll be called to recommend somebody and I'll, I'll give a few names and see the one who is available will be able to, want to do it. And then if they're my student, I make sure I go over the music with them before they go to the rehearsals. So, that they do. so uh, yes, in this area, there, there are far more people who can play than there are positions, but that's, that's true for any instrument, uh, even for violin. Uh, but in terms of the actual competition, right these days, it's almost... Not we're having an audition for this. It's, I got your name. Can you do this? Can you play this? So the, the audition, is a sen in a sense, is having developed a reputation yes. amongst your colleagues yes. until your name is put forth for something. Yes, and you develop a reputation among your colleagues by associating with your colleagues. Sometimes that happens from within school. And playing in an ensemble and making a great impression, which is why I train my students with the idea that your first rehearsal, the first rehearsal of the ensemble is your performance. Go into the first rehearsal knowing your part so well that you stand out and make a tremendous impression to the conductor saying, this person knows what he's doing and he sounds great. I'm going to remember that. And that's something that people aren't, aren't used to, the idea that you go to a first rehearsal being prepared for its performance. But I've had so many situations where I've done that. And even though I may have screwed up the concert, <laughs> I still get rehired because the, the conductor knows I know what I'm doing. Now, what is it about the travel that you've, you're getting more and more involved in? What is it about that that is stimulating to you so much? I very much enjoy imparting to people around the world uh, aspects of my unique experiences in, in the field. 
whether it's playing music they haven't heard of before, that I think is very important for them to learn, whether it's conducting some of my arrangements for saxophone ensemble that are now being heard worldwide, uh, by my interest in what I'm doing the conducting, to instill upon the orchestra a level of playing that they're not used to doing. So we get into the minutia of performance with articulation and with blending and with balancing um, and with interpretive things that they may not be used to, to playing and they can really feel how their level of playing is being elevated. It's just tremendously rewarding to me. Yeah. Now you've worked a lot with composers. How important has it been for you to work closely and personally with people and their music? It's quite vital. Uh, when I ask a composer to write something for it, I, uh, I have an interest in presenting the saxophone in, uh, from this more orchestral tradition of, of, of playing. And the saxophone has such a great reputation of its versatility that a composer could write something in a, in a jazz context, or they could write something in a hip-hop context, or they could write something in a, uh, in, in a folk context, or any kind of things. And uh, there's so much of that out there now that's really great music that I, I'd like to see if I can just bring them more towards writing in a, in a more traditional sense for the instrument so it can be played within the context. So that's one of them. And then there are other technical things. I want to make sure that they don't write too low, they don't write too high. For me, they don't write too fast. <laughs> uh, those kinds of things. But mostly, mostly in, in trying to see if they can write in a way that I would like to. Because there are so many wonderful players of the saxophone these days who, who uh, are comfortable in playing in this contemporary classical style or this contemporary classical style, this contemporary classical style. I like to try to find composers who will write in the contemporary style that is of interest to me. So that, that's part of, part of what we work with. How important is uh, the creative aspects and improvisation to you, uh, both in your practice and also in music performance? Uh, I do a lot of non-jazz improvisation. I was once in a group that was a non-jazz improvisation group. And so uh, I believe very much in the idea of the spontaneity of hearing something and playing something and, and, and making up something that you hear and then being able to have it sound on your instrument. That's a direct connection of thought expression, which I think is very valuable for us to have. It keeps us fresh, it keeps us creative, it keeps us always exploring different ways of understanding the relationships that we have musically. Uh, in performance, uh, I like to take advantage of the moment in, in my rapport with the audience that, I'm, that I sense when I'm playing to be able to move my interpretation in order to maximize the rapport with the audience. So there's a sense of freedom there. Now, it can't be freedom where I disregard the pianist or disregard the ensemble I'm playing with. Uh, that will get me booed and fired. <laughs> <laughs> but there, is, there are some things where there's certain dramatic elements that there's a certain freedom there. I won't call it improvisation, but it's not locked in to where we can, uh, we can really breathe with or feel with or rapport with the, uh, the environs that we're in and create a more meaningful dialogue with that. And that all comes about from having the confidence of improvisation and freedom. Is it uh, therefore something that you encourage in your students as well? Yes, I do that. Um, this would be controversial, but um, 
many of my students come in saying, you know, I practice my long tones every day and that's helpful to get my amateur. And if you stop, don't do long tones. I don't believe in long tones. I believe in overtones. But sometimes it, with long tones, uh, I feel that you're as, as much reinforcing bad habits, just by playing something and then letting it go for a long time as you are reinforcing good habits. So I'd like you to replace long tones with lyrical improvisations. Close your eyes and make up your own folk songs and play them on the instrument and play them with beautiful sound, play them with good expression and just have an experience of 15, 20 minutes a day of just playing freely to your mind and get, get more in touch with what your mind hears and what your fingers play. Now I've got a couple of rapid fire questions. Quick question with a quick answer. Um, talking of controversial. So here's, here's the first one. Is there something that you believe that few people agree with? Yes. That was a quick answer. <laughs> <laughs> is there, what is it specifically uh, that comes to mind? The ability to achieve orchestral parity of the saxophone to, uh, to the other orchestral instruments. Mm -hmm. I, we haven't done it yet. Yep. Uh, second controversial thing. The more experienced, the more mature we are as players, the less the equipment matters. And I, f I found that out quite personally. Now I can sound 99% like myself on anything. Here's a, here's, a, here's a long story to show you that. I was hired to play the Rachmaninoff Symphony Dances with the Charleston Symphony, Charleston, South Carolina. It's in, in the deep south. And I was coming there from Cleveland, Ohio, which is the, in the north part of the, our country. So it's an hour and a half plane ride. So I finished my teaching in Oberlin, jumped on a plane, took the flight to, to, Charles, to Charleston, uh, and got to the rehearsal 10 minutes before they were starting the Rachmaninoff. I timed it too well. There's a little delay there. So I got into the, the, uh, uh, the dressing room, pulled out my mouthpieces, put, it, put on the mouthpiece, started warming up, and it was a very warm day in, in Charleston, beautiful weather, as it is oftentimes there. And I was saying, wow, my practice is really paying off. I can really play. This is really great. I, my high notes are coming up better than ever because I didn't need it for the Rachmaninoff when I'm warming up. This is great. So I went there, played the rehearsal. Conductor was thrilled to see me because he, uh, he had regularly hired me. Um, and and uh, I played the, the Rachmaninoff solo part and it was just just fine. I had to work a little bit harder, but you know, I just got down there. It was tired reads. And then it was done. You know, the solo lasts for 35 measures and then I'm done for the day. And they didn't need to rehearse it again because they had other things to rehearse and I knew my part well. So I went back to the dressing room to put my horn away to, to go to my hotel room. Took my mouthpiece off and found that instead of putting on my caravan mouthpiece, I put on my Autolink 7 Star. <laughs> they looked the same from the outside. They both had Robert Ligerson on it. I was just too in a hurry. I didn't realize that. But it didn't make a difference in my playing because they still made it sound the same. I worked twice as hard. And of course, that's why my high notes came up better because it's a commercial mouthpiece. But I was able to make it sound virtually the same. And I had a good laugh over that because um, although I felt something was different, the sound was just about the same and they, they heard it the way they used to hearing me. For the other rehearsals, I used my regular mouthpiece and it was more comfortable. That's an example where I'm able to overcome the, the materials difference to make it sound the way I wanted the sound because of my experience in playing. I'm just able to make those changes. I couldn't have done that 10 years earlier where I was still more susceptible to the equipment. So the more mature we get, the better we get, the more experience we get, the less the materials matter. If you just had one piece of music that you could play from now on, what would that be? <gasps> That's, I can't answer the question. 
I've spent the last 25 years promoting the original version of the Dahl Concerto in a way that I hope the rest of the wind community and the saxophone community will embrace and allow to be entered into the saxophone repertoire. It can't now because the publishers aren't allowing it. The, uh, the publishers have said that we will continue to sell or, or rent the revised version, but not the original version, unless through your efforts, we'll let you perform it, we'll let you record it, we'll let you lecture about it, but you can't copy, you can't give it away. And if enough people from the community, if the winds and the saxophones say, we want this, then maybe we'll take it on. That's been a cause to them for me for a long time. I've now performed the piece about 14 times over the last 25 years. So that's a piece of great, great importance to me. And a major work anyway. So that's that's one that would have to be at, at, the, at the top of an undo with animal. But after that, there are about a list of this long of great saxophone works that I think are comparable to any great wind works of the 20th century that are really important. If you just had one hour to practice, how would you spend that time? Uh, eyes closed, improvising. Who would you consider to be, through your personal experience, one of the most successful contributors to the world of saxophone? This is radical. In my mind, the greatest contributions for the saxophone are going to be expressed in the literature written for those players. Mm -hmm. Less so in terms of the great artistry. The artistry comes and goes, but it was the artistry that inspired these pieces to be written. So for that, I say three people. Cecil Leeson, mm -hmm. who many people don't know about, who I do a lot of lecturing on, Marcel Wheel and Secret Russian, just for the repertoire. And in, in ranking those three, in terms of repertoire, we have um, Sigurd Rascher, of course, for the amazing repertoire written for him. And then Marcel Buell, with tremendous gratitude for Cecil Leeson, for whom we have the Crested Pieces, the Granger work that, that I just gave you, and um, some smaller works that we play in this country all the time by Lawson Lunday. If we learn from our mistakes, is it okay to make mistakes? Mistakes are inevitable as part of our, uh, our humanity. So instead of having an attitude that pro or con, we just sort of accept that, yes, we will be making mistakes as we continue our, our life's journey, whether it's going to be as a player or whether it's going to be uh, doing anything else we do. So uh, making mistakes, as inevitable as it is, becomes a, a profound learning experience for us. And we can learn from those in a tremendously positive way if we don't punish ourselves for them in helping us to uh, overcome the shortcomings that produce the mistakes and to become less mistake prone. So um, I know sometimes with my students, the mistakes that they make are tremendous opportunities and windows of enlightenment and, and path directions that can open up a whole other way of understanding something that they couldn't have known unless they'd made the mistakes. Are you yourself um, good at coping and dealing with any mistakes that may occur, if they occur, of course. In my own life? Yeah. I'm tremendously cognizant of those errors. <laughs> and depending upon the day, I, I'm either very accepting and work towards them, or, or I use language not appropriate for this podcast. <laughs> um, but, but yes, in fact, it's going to sound strange, but in fact, with the efficiency that I require for preparation of music 
I use the mistakes that I make as tools to help me contour the nature of my practicing so that I can get better results sooner. And if, and if I didn't have those mistakes, then it might not be sufficient. Is there a piece of advice that you could give your younger self that you think might have been beneficial to you when you were just starting out? Learn more about the politics of bureaucracy. If I had known how the systems worked, I was very naive about these things. If I had known how the systems work, it may have allowed me to have gotten more opportunities to do other things that I'm, that I'm doing now. So I think having an awareness of how systems work and how people interact together and the reality of what will create appropriate opportunities could have been much better for me. Mm -hmm. I think we could probably talk for hours about that. This is yes. a very interesting well, aspect. Is that something that you discuss with your students to, to help them understand what's going on around them? Absolutely. And, and um, I will use my own experiences, the naive ones, as an example of what we cannot do anymore these days. Uh, I was very, very lucky as, as a, an emerging saxophonist to have gotten by on my naivete, but my enthusiasm and my preparations really helped me to get to places. But that probably would not work today. So a lot of what I discuss with my students about career development and how to get positions, I don't mean even academic positions, I just mean how to get hired for things, uh, is very different than what I went through. But I now know all this. I now know this by seeing it and by being by affected by it. So now I can give them some really salient uh, and practical advice as to what we need to do to take our excellent talent and abilities and to give it a practical nudge towards employment. Now, is there a, a, a recent or a current project that you're working on that you would like to share with everybody? Uh, how much time do we have? <laughs> there are several projects. I'm very excited to be uh, recording the original doll with a very excellent wind ensemble in this area, and that's going to be happening uh, next season. That will be the first commercial recording of this piece ever, and I hope that will give the impetus for pe as people here to become interested in it, to want to uh, do what's necessary to make it available. I'm also in the midst of preparing another chamber music CD of pieces that are unknown or little known for the saxophone. So I'm doing the uh, the Rosenden Champion piece uh, for bassoon saxophone, and we, we did it on harpsichord, which is originally asked for harpsichord. Doing a piece that was written for one of my students for flute, saxophone, and piano by Steve Cohen, a local composer, a piece that I helped to discover by Charles Leffler from 1903, the Ballade Carnivalesque for flute, saxophone, oboe, bassoon, and piano. A major chamber work, tremendously sophisticated writing from 1903. It's a, it's a masterpiece of chamber writing by a well-known American composer from 1903. I've found it, I reconciled and restored it, I published it, and now I'm, I'm recording it. So that is a chamber CD that I'm very excited about. Also on that will be some music I'm playing uh, on the Kano sax with string quartet, a uh, piece by Erica Wazen for, for uh, saxophone and string quartet. So those are some some things that I'm, yeah. I'm uh, very excited about. And where can we find out more about your activities? Where, where can we keep up to date? Soon a re revised website uh, of mine will be coming online. Until that time, you can look at my, my publishing company uh, called tothefourpublishers.com, and you can see some things that are happening there as well as some of the titles that are coming on, which I'm very excited about, some chamber works that are unknown that I think are very valuable to know about. So it's a work that I just recorded for um, 
clarinet, violin, cello, and piano by an American composer. A really terrific work that I now publish. We should talk about that. Uh, and some other titles of pieces that I think all saxophonists should be aware of and to be able to, to uh, draw on when they're coming with programs that are oftentimes not known because many saxophonists have their own limited repertoire box and they don't know enough to go to go out of the box. I don't have a box. I have, I have a archives. <laughs> <laughs> Great. Now, Paul, you've made an enormous contribution to the saxophone and uh, continues to this day. What do you see for yourself long-term in relationship to the saxophone? This is a difficult question because uh, I'm working so hard to get all these other projects happening so fast that I'm not, I'm not looking. I want to get these things there because I think the impact of what I do will have, make a difference, but I'm not looking so long-term to be looking back yet. I'm still scrambling to get just one step ahead of myself. Uh, but ultimately what I hope is that there's going to be a, a greater awareness of the rich traditions and history of the saxophone in a meaningful way, and not just the superficial paragraphs that we read here and there, that we become aware of uh, a phenomenal repertoire for instrument that could be useful and serviceable in any situation that will help to dignify the instrument and give us more opportunities to play in other situations. And if I'm lucky, raise the level of saxophone playing to a higher level, to where it, it to the discriminating listener, will actually have parity to those of our orchestral colleagues. And that's just beyond a nicer tone, a more fluent technique, uh, better intonation. It's beyond that. It's about how we take these things and to create it, uh, a, a much greater artistic vista for that. Paul, thanks very much for your time this afternoon. Thank you for showing me around. Thank you for welcoming me, me and my family. And uh, it's been a pleasure to meet you. Oh, it's great to see you as well. Thank you. Just before you go, a quick reminder to let you know that show notes, any links, and a full text transcript are also available. It would mean a lot to me if you could leave a review for the show by visiting barrysax.com forward slash iTunes. You can subscribe for a new episode each week, and thanks again for joining me and my guests on Barry Zach's show. Not professionally. Isn't it enough that I play 200 saxophones? <laughs> Is that all? <laughs> Is there such thing as a curved saxophone? No. <laughs> no such thing. Good question. Who, who knows enough to ask that kind of question? Are you still getting more in your collection? Sometimes, yes. So uh, what, what's a saxophone that you like wish to get? Oh, what's this one? That is a E-flat contrabass saxophone. And which saxophone do you play the best yeah. on? I just get a, might go outside for this one. Because, <laughs> oh, so shoot! So here is a, here is a Ciprilla. The, uh, this one? That's a baritone. Yeah. I thought this one was like massive and it was huge and now it looks tiny! Now it looks, yeah, kind of, we can just take it with us, right? So you could have done a whole podcast by now. <laughs>